we are in Romans 6, so you have the uh, scripture sheet in front of you, an outline, and we're going to be having scriptures on the screen. In the fabulous sixth, <coughs> sixth chapter of Romans, we are discovering that the gospel of Jesus involves both an extraordinary transaction and an extraordinary transformation that leads us in Christ, in his life, or that lands us, I should say, in Christ, in his life and his righteousness, and also makes us free from the dominion of sin and of Satan. The apostle continues in that line of thought today as we come to chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death. But now, <coughs> having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our passage begins there in verse 15 with a question that actually also began the entire sixth chapter. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And we've already dispatched that distorted view of the gospel which suggests that because salvation is grace-based that our lives can then be sin-based. When we understand grace, we appreciate the power that it has to give us pardon through the cross, but also to give us the ability to walk in newness of life through the Spirit. We are free from sin. We are transformed to walk in a holy and a loving joy, and that is truly awesome. And so the apostle repeats his emphatic refutation of that bad idea, but then he goes on <clears throat> to lay before us two ways, two masters, and two destinies. <clears throat> Human philosophy is always trying to provide us with multiple options, but Scripture generally brings us back to only two. You obey the devil and eat the fruit, or you obey the Lord and you say no. You choose the way of life or the way of death. You side with the fools or with the wise. You bow the knee to King Jesus or to Caesar. And here Paul presents the two options for us. Go the way of sin, leading to shame and death, or you go the way of Christ, leading to holiness and to life. Two masters, two ways, two destinies, 
Let's begin by looking at the two masters. In verse 19, Paul says he is speaking in human terms, by which he means he is going to describe spiritual realities by means of a human institution, namely that of slavery. Slavery has been a fairly common element of human society from nearly the beginning. It has been understood a little differently from culture to culture, but the basic idea that we get, one person is dominant, the other person is subservient. There is master and there is slave. And your gut reaction to this arrangement, and mine too, is probably quite negative. What do we prefer to slavery? Freedom! But when we think carefully, we realize that absolute freedom Absolute freedom does not really exist in this life. Instead, we face choices. You are free to sleep in and play video games all day, or you're free to have a home over your head and to eat food because you got up and you went to work, right? You choose which freedoms to pursue and which confining attachments to take on. That is life. And Paul is teaching us that every one of us is going to be a slave of some kind to some master. You are going to serve somebody. You are going to serve something. It will either be sin or righteousness. It'll be yourself or it'll be Christ the Lord. Pick a side. If you sit in the middle of the road, you're going to get run over. I weary of the constant search for a third way, you know, something balanced, something moderate. No, no. You go with light or you go with darkness. You go with Satan or you go with Jesus. You go with wisdom or you go with folly. You go with truth or you choose the lie. But truly, for those who are not mindful of the choice, there, there is a default setting. And, and that default setting is the lordship of sin the domination of evil, uh, evil powers that drag us into shame and into death. Verse 16 is, is quite clear. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? The Lord Jesus told people plainly that they were slaves of sin. As native sons and daughters of Adam, that is the default setting. People don't think of it any more than a fish thinks about it being wet. It is just the atmosphere into which we are born. So one strategy of our enemy is that he tries to convince folks that uh, their bondage to sin <laughs> is actually freedom. They think they are not constrained like those, you know, those pitiful religious folk. And uh, admittedly, there is, a, there is a certain freedom when you are outside of Christ. You're free maybe from a nagging conscience. You're free from the constraints of God's law. You're free from truth and free from any kind of covenant love that restricts you from doing whatever you're feeling. But the call of the gospel is actually a call to leave your bondage to sin and to find a form of freedom through a new bondage, a slavery to a gracious master. You think back to the Exodus from Egypt. Remember those famous words that Moses spoke to Pharaoh? What did he say to the Egyptian tyrant? Let my people 
go. Yeah, that's true, but we usually forget the rest of it. Moses actually was speaking for the Lord, and the longer version was, let my people go that they may serve me. They were still going to serve somebody, but it would be a benevolent Lord, not a cruel tyrant. Paul is saying, you're going to have a master. You will serve somebody. It can be a predator, tyrant, or it can be a savior king. And the latter is so great (laughs) that it can be the kind of slavery worthy of the name freedom. Free at last. Free at last. Great God Almighty, we are in Christ free at last. Listen to the words of this George Matheson hymn. He says, make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Interesting. My heart is weak and poor until it master find it cannot freely move till thou hast wrought its chain. Enslave it with thy matchless love and deathless it shall reign. The point is that joyful freedom is ironically found in becoming a fully devoted follower and, yes, slave of Jesus. Because the binding principle is not fear of punishment. No, no. This isn't, that isn't what keeps us near and serving our Lord. To quote a hymn, by Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love. You know the next two words? Love, so demanding, so amazing, so divine, demands, that's the word I was thinking of, demands my soul, my life, my all. The love that binds our hearts is the love of Christ as master. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died. And he died so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And when we get some inkling of how magnificently and sacrificially we have been loved by our Lord Jesus, we cannot help but serve him and love him and live for him. And we count it our highest honor, indeed our joy, so to do. So when the Lord's voice goes forth asking, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? We, like Isaiah, respond by saying, here am I, Lord. Send me. I am happy to serve because we have gladly taken Jesus to be our loving king. So those are the two masters. But let's move on now to look at the two ways. Verse 17 But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. (laughs) So, is Christianity a commitment to a person or to a philosophy? That doesn't have to be an either or. And it isn't. It cannot be. At its core, Christianity is a personal commitment to Christ himself. But since Christ is a teacher, guess what? (laughs) It necessarily includes a commitment to what Jesus 
teaches. As believers, we have stepped away from the ideas of the world, and we have adopted a new worldview provided by our new teacher. Conversion then includes the adoption of a new philosophy, a new truth, a new way of seeing. Indeed, the New Testament refers to coming to faith as coming to the knowledge of the truth. And this is more evident, it seems, For those who come to faith uh, later in life, when one's adult life and way of thinking is sort of already established, I think of my uh, brother Rich Hayden who came to faith in Christ sort of in midlife and found that the study uh, of the teaching of Christ in the Bible opened his eyes to a whole new way of seeing and understanding the world, not just spiritual things and eternal things, but a, a way that makes far more sense than what he had previously believed. And hey, our world teaches an incredible amount of nonsense that most humans just mindlessly accept. Part of our salvation as Christians is to be made free of all that as we grow to share the mind of Christ, to see as he sees, to think as he thinks. There is a teaching to which we become committed, brothers and sisters. Not not that you aren't committed to some ideology prior to conversion. You, You really were. Everyone is living by some wisdom. Everybody's living by some philosophy, some worldview, some set of values. I generally don't think it helpful to speak of some persons as religious vis-a-vis others who are non-religious. I think that leads to more misunderstanding than understanding. For many, what they hear is, oh, well, that's a religious person, by which they mean a non-rational person who is under the sway of superstitions, not a non-biased, science-based thinker like me and all those secular folk. But the fact is that everyone operates out of a set of core beliefs that they derive from somewhere, often their family or their school or their favorite cable news station. Uh, For us, for Bible-based followers of Christ, we know the where. We can point to the source, the source of our ideas and our values, and we can look to God's Word in order to evaluate our own thinking and hopefully correct it and adjust our thinking when it is not in line with the Word. What an advantage we have who are committed to Christ and his teaching. Now you see in Paul's description of conversion that it includes putting faith in the person of Jesus and in the teaching of Jesus. These are not exactly the same, but they cannot be separated, okay? I find there are many in our day, they have a favorable disposition to Jesus the person. They have some image of him in their head that they find appealing. They therefore call themselves Christians and they speak fondly of the good Lord. But do they view the teaching of Christ in a positive way? Well, you know what they do is they pick and choose from that, right? Uh, They take what they like, they discard the rest, they don't actually commit themselves to the way of Christ, the teaching of Christ. Usually this is because the Lord the Lord tells us, uh, what the Lord tells us is frowned on by the broader culture. Or it's out of accord with my personal desires. As a result, people who call Jesus Lord end up with very different ideas about eternal life and about judgment, about the nature of God, and about ethics. Uh, 
We see this often in our day around issues of sexuality. So many want to identify as Jesus people, but they run from what his word says about things that could put us at odds with the popular culture. They, they value truth a little, but their primary value is being cool, being hip, being fashionable. They want to be associated with the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus, but not his teaching. And I hope you can see how nonsensical that actually is. Just as there are two masters and one must choose, so there are two ways. And the way of the master, that must be our choice and even our delight. That means we embrace the teaching of Jesus. We study it and we endeavor to shape our thinking and our teaching and our behavior according to it. Committed from the heart to the teaching, to the doctrine, to the truth. All right, so then too, there are not only two masters and two ways, but also two destinies. The last three verses most clearly set this forth. Look at them again. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. <laughs> Say this with me. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is death, and there is eternal life. These are the destinies. On the way to death, there is also this thing called shame, which is unpleasant. On the way to eternal life, there is this thing called sanctification, which is really sweet. So which one is Paul recommending? <laughs> which one sounds better to you? Obviously, the eternal life. This is life with God, love with God, and love with God can never, ever stop. It begins in this life, but finds its fullness in the next when we experience undiluted glory, the full blessing of God's presence and smile. We've sung of that already. Needless to say, the alternative is devoid of these things completely. It is eternal darkness away from God and under his judgment. These two destinies are as different as we can imagine, and, and even more so, which is why you must, do, you must do all that you can to earn a spot in the place of eternal life. Right? Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Not right. Completely wrong. Completely wrong. Because, and this blows away so much religious nonsense, eternal life, according to verse 23, is a what? It is a gift. Eternal death, well, that's deserved. Paul says that is the wages of your sin. You earn it by your transgression of God's law. The opposing side of that, it seems, would be that we earn eternal life by law-keeping, but Paul is laboring to show us that we can't work, that work doesn't work because we have already lost that opportunity. But our God makes a way 
through the sacrifice of Jesus, who paid the debt for sin, who rose to the right hand of the majesty of high. Jesus now reigns as king from his place of power, and he offers to sinners like you and like me his eternal life as a gift, not as a noble aspiration, but a gift, a gift. Ephesians says we are saved by grace. It is the gift of God. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you know what? <laughs> Somebody put the turtle up there, right? Turtle didn't climb up the fence post by his own effort. It's like, you know, you see a teenager with a hot car. You know what? How did that teenager get the hot car? It was a gift. It had to be. You see a sinner that has eternal life, and you know the same thing. It has to be grace. It has to be something the Lord has done for that sinner, and so it is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. So what does this mean for us? It means that securing our eternal destiny involves the taking of a gift. So what do you do when someone offers you a gift? Let's imagine your uncle uh, gives you an iPad at Christmas. I had an uncle that, like that. You need an uncle. Everybody should have one uncle. That <laughs> Our uncle gave us furniture because that's what he, he owned, the Georgia Chair Company. So he gave us good gifts whenever we came to visit him in Gainesville, Georgia. But your uncle gives you an iPad. How do you respond to that? <laughs> do, you, uh, do, you, do you find your wallet and say, now how much was that iPad? And you start peeling off 20s to pay your uncle. Is that what you do? Why not? Because it is a gift. And how do we receive a gift? Your mom and dad taught you how to do this, right? How do you receive a gift? You take it and you say, thank you very much. Okay, have you ever done that with the gift of eternal life offered by God? No? Today could be for you then the day of salvation. Salvation from sin, salvation from shame, and ultimately from death. Salvation unto eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. You take that and you say, thank you. All right. Two masters, two ways, two destinies. We're recommending Jesus as master, okay? His teaching as the way, eternal life as the destiny. None of these come naturally for us, so to get all of that, there has to be one great change. That's the next point. A transformation is needed. Oh, but I'm told that isn't in the cards. People don't change. Really? Rich, did you change? I thought you did. Did you change, Deanne? I thought you did. Look again at Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Wow. Something major had to change. You had to undergo a dramatic transformation. The next verse says, and having been freed from sin, 
you became slaves of righteousness. You see that change there? That, that's huge. That is a Jesus revolution right there. <laughs> Don't tell me it can't happen. This is for real. And, and how, how does it happen? Well, you were one thing, now you're something else. Yeah. This is what it means, what we mean by conversion to Christ. Everything significant changes. What you are, whose you are, whom you serve, what you believe, what you see, what you hear, what you're going to do, where you're going to spend eternity. It is all made new and it's made different and yes, it's made better. You were living for sin and living for self. Now you live for Christ, you live for righteousness, you live for love. Elsewhere the Bible tells us this occurs when someone is born again, which is when the Holy Spirit of God invades your life and gives you eyes to see the spiritual realities to which you were previously blind. You notice in verse 17 that it mentions being obedient from the heart, from the heart. There's a change that must occur. Outward rituals can't do this for you. A human program can't do this for you. Your heart must change, and God only can do that. He's the king of hearts. He can open your heart. He can soften your heart. He can change your heart. And, and that's the only thing that can turn a slave to sin into an obedient servant. That change, that, that's all part of this gift of God that is eternal life. Ask for that gift. Then one other thing to do, this is the, the one choice. Your last point, the one choice. <clears throat> Present yourself to the master. Present yourself, verse 19 is where we finish. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members, your body parts, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Present yourself. December 8, 1941, a Monday in America. Guess what happened all around the 50 states of our union? On that Monday, one day after the bombing at Pearl Harbor, young men all over the country some of your fathers, maybe your grandfathers, they showed up at enlistment centers and they presented themselves. And they said, here am I, send me. They offered themselves for service to their country. By the way, one of the most common ways throughout history for someone to become a slave is to present himself or herself for that role. People without means would go to wealthy persons in whom they would put their trust and pledge their service, but they present themselves, and that is what the apostle admonishes us to do here. Thankfully, our hymn books are full of poetry that expresses the heart of the one who does this. And so, indulge your pastor in some more hymn quoting. <laughs> have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Take my life and let it be, what? 
consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, take my feet, take my lips, take my silver and my gold. Not a mite will I withhold. Take my will, take my heart, take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. You getting what it means to present yourselves to your master, to serve him in righteousness? Fanny Crosby wrote, Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be, my will be lost in thine. That's the language of trusting self-presentation. Another says, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. That word all, by the way, plays an important role in presenting ourselves to serve the Lord. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. I surrender. What? All. I surrender all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. So brothers and sisters, this is how we must begin every single day. This is, can't come up with a better way to start your day. (laughs) You say, Lord, this day I am yours. We present ourselves before our rightful King and our worthy Savior to serve him and his purposes in the earth, and then no turning back, no dallying with sin, no compromise. I end with this example of someone presenting himself to the Lord, a guy named Mike Peters, he wrote this. He says, I'm part of the following of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple. You could install the word slave. I am a disciple of his. I will not let up, look back, slow down, be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I have finished and am done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, or rewarded. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is sure, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my God is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, delayed, or diluted. I will not flinch in the face of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus. When he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me because my colors will be clear. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we stand amazed again at this extraordinary gospel. 
And in some respects, we sense we only grasp a fraction of what it all means for us. Would you please, oh God, open our minds and our hearts. Lord, that our hearts might gladly embrace the form of teaching that is offered by our Savior and gladly embrace Jesus as our master. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. Lord, it's an interesting paradox. You're our master, we serve you, but you're the one that gives us the gift. And so we embrace that today, this gift of life eternal, which we know is servitude to you, being a disciple of Jesus, And so we would today present ourselves, as Paul admonishes us so to do, present ourselves unto you to be yours, to go where you send us, to live as you direct us, to walk in close proximity and faithful obedience to you. Lord, you know those things that distract us, that tend to pull us away? We renounce them now. We are all in with you, Lord Jesus. And we seal this commitment with our amen and with our song.